Hey, listener, are you happy with your current chicken wings? Do you wish you had something a little saucier? If you answered yes, then it might be time for you to break up with your old chicken wings and get a new honey. Lemon pepper wing from Popeye's. Share the wings with your friends so they can see it's time to move on, too. Head to Popeye's and get six-piece honey lemon pepper wings for $5.99 at participating U.S. restaurants. Price may vary. Well, Trot, we're, we're in it now. First day of the Deshaun Watson disciplinary hearings happening today as we see the, the headline from Mike Florio. Hearing starting today, uh, former federal judge Sue Robinson overseeing the process. Deshaun Watson appearing in person, uh, represented by Jeffrey Kessler, the NFL union. Uh, the NFL has its lawyers, Lisa Friel, uh, the, the lead uh, essentially investigative officer for the NFL is there. We are in it. And I got to tell you, it was interesting. I was on the phone last night, um, had a chance to talk to someone uh, that was involved from the league's vantage. And they said, you know, this could have been wrapped. Like, this is something that, that we feel like uh, when the two sides were talking uh, last week, really kind of leading up into this, the NFL said to the, to the union and to Deshaun Watson, floated the idea that, you know what, a one-year suspension. We'll give you a one-year suspension, but, but it will be finite. Once that suspension's over... You come back into the fold, you serve, you know, serve out the, the 12 months, the calendar year, and we move forward from this. Hard no. Hard no from Deshaun Watson. Hard no from his camp. Hard no from the union. There was no way they were going for that. And from what I understand, that upset the NFL. I think they were unhappy about that. And so the response was, okay, you don't want to take a one-year finite suspension? We're going to recommend it's a one-year open-ended suspension. In other words, for you to even get back in the league after that year, now you got to apply. You have to meet some standards to come back into the fold. So something that clearly I think the NFL felt like they had reached what they thought was an equitable uh, you know, period of time that Deshaun Watson would sit out. He did not like that, and I guarantee you the fact that his contract would have told um, and, and he essentially would have lost $40-plus million in salary played a part in it. You know, Charles, I, there are two points to this. Um, number one, for Deshaun's camp to accept a one-year finite suspension means that you trust that at the end of that one year, that suspension will be up. Let's say, though, that other information was to come out during the course of this suspension, and the league would then say in its own quarters, we've got to do something about this. What is to prevent the league then from coming back and saying, we have new evidence and any discipline now that we hand out in addition to the one-year suspension, this is something different, and therefore we are going to extend that suspension. I'm not saying that's what would have happened. I'm just saying you try and, and cover all, all, your, all bases um, if you're Deshaun's camp. But the thing that's more interesting to me here from the NFL standpoint is if the league, let's say, got mad that Deshaun didn't accept the one-year finite ex, um, suspension, what the league has now done then, if this is true, is set up a potential scenario where now this drags out beyond next year because Deshaun is going to have to come after a year, apply for reinstatement, and now the whole story is brought up all over again. And the people who are yep. upset that he's even playing, period, are going to be you know, hammering the league again. So I think the league needs to be careful here in terms of, you know, that old cliche about cutting off your nose to spite your face. Um, because if you want to move past this, and I have to believe that the league wants to move past this, if you give him an indefinite suspension, you basically open this up again 
to be relitigated in the public forum, if you will, a year from now. I think, too, what's interesting, again, to the people I've spoken to, I think if the league had come to the table and said nine games, ten games, I think the union's lawyers would have told Deshaun Watson, we think you should take this. Like, we think this has um, gotten into a zone where you come back during the 2022 season, nine, ten games, It's you're not going to be happy sitting out. The Browns, Cleveland Browns, obviously aren't going to be happy with that. But we believe that you should take that number. And I think they were hoping once the two sides started talking that that was a zone that that the NFL would ultimately land in. My question for you, Jim, is how do we when we talk about him applying to come back? Right. If if you are setting up a process where someone has to ask to be reinstated, it means you're going to have to meet some standards. So now I think the question is, say this goes through the disciplinary process. The league says we want the open ended year, want one year and then he's got to reapply. Say that Sue Robinson looks at it and says, yeah, you know what? I, I think that based on all the evidence I have in front of me, the data, the contemporaneous evidence that's involved with the, you know, the five women, that the narrow scope of, of women that they're looking at, what then becomes the standard? What, how does the league decide, okay, he's going to apply for reinstatement. Here's what we believe he has to meet. In your mind, what does the NFL lay out for Deshaun Watson and say, here are the thresholds you're going to need to meet to get back into the NFL? You know, Charles, it's a great question for which I have no answer, to be quite frank, from this standpoint. Look, Deshaun has already said publicly that he is going to counseling. So he, again, has maintained over and over that he has done nothing wrong, but he is seeking to improve himself, and therefore he is going to counseling for something. Don't know what that is. So his camp could make the argument that he is already taking steps to try and, and, and learn from this so to speak. Um, I don't know what those steps would be. I mean, you go back to past precedent, and the only case that I, that, that I think is somewhat similar, if you will, is we talk a lot about Ben Roethlisberger, who initially was suspended six games. It was appealed down to four. Um, did the league require Ben to undergo any sort of counseling um, any sort of community service. I, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm spitballing here. Um, so I don't know what the league would require of Deshaun in, the, in such a situation. Um, and that's one of the dangers here if the league does say it's going to be an indefinite suspension because then the question will become by some, um, has the league done enough? Did it require enough for Deshaun to come back? And now you've put yourself in an awkward position again. And that's why... If you can just have it clean cut here, here are the number of games. Once that's up, um, you know, you'll be free to return. But again, if new evidence comes out in the course of this, what's to say that the league says, you know what? We didn't have this information when we handed down discipline. And therefore, we feel that this is something new, something different, something more severe. And therefore, we need to go back and address it again. One other thing that comes out today, obviously, um, not only does Watson head into this hearing, but Baker Mayfield has made known, I think what you and I have talked about for a while now, he's burned on the Browns. He doesn't want to be there. I, I think when you talk to people in the organization, they're kind of burned on it too. They just don't, I don't think they thought in any scenario realistically that Baker Mayfield was ever going to be on the field for them again. But Mayfield's been pretty clear now in saying, we've we've moved on like both sides kind of know it's time to part company here 
any surprise at all? I mean, now, at least at the very least, now we know one year is absolutely on the table for Deshaun Watson. And I always thought that was the scenario where maybe the Browns sit there and go, maybe we can try to figure this out with Baker for one more year and then he can leave and, and go get paid in free agency. Clearly, nobody seems to want that. No, I, I never envisioned that Baker would be back after they made the Deshaun deal, after Baker reacted the way that he made, even about them pursuing Deshaun. Um, and the fact that last year, as you know, at the end of last season where Baker pulled himself, excuse me, out late and said he was going to look out for himself in terms of his health and, and, and deal with his injury, um, it was pretty clear that the relationship there was going south. And once they started to pursue Deshaun, um, and then told Baker, no need for you to come in in the offseason. I, I don't ever see him playing for the Browns again. I think what the Browns are going to do is wait to see who needs a quarterback um, as we go into training camp uh, and then see if they can move him then. So, you know, there's still some uncertainty. There are teams out there that people talk about, whether particularly the Seahawks as it relates to, to Baker. Um, but the Seahawks have said, and, and folks that I've talked to there, that, that they are quite comfortable with Drew Locke. They like him a lot, and I anticipate that he will be their guy. So that's not to say a trade won't happen, but I still don't see Baker Mayfield playing for the Browns this year. Yeah, I agree. I don't think – I think it's done. And and I, I'm with you. I think Seattle, Carolina um, continues to linger. These are all teams that are more than happy to sit back and wait and see what happens. There's no – pressure point I think that the Browns hoped would would arrive really has never arrived and now everybody's just sort of sitting back reclining and seeing how it unfolds and it'll be the same with with the Deshaun Watson disciplinary process we'll see first day of what could be a few days before we find out exactly what's in store for Deshaun Watson yeah that's the thing though too Charles I mean we don't have a timetable for when this decision is going to come down I mean even as Sue Robinson goes through the process here um, there is nothing that says how quickly she will make a ruling on this. So it could be days, it could be weeks, it could be months. We still don't know. So there's just so much uncertainty here. Obviously, everyone would like to know sooner than later so that they can plan accordingly and, 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 and move forward accordingly as we go into training camp. But um, I don't know when we're going to get a decision on this. Well, we'll see. <laughs> everything that's going on you're not going to outlaw everything you got to at least make it harder to to get those those crazy guns that everybody's using um i don't think you should be able to just walk in there and buy one you got to be able to go through you know a, a rigorous process to to be able to buy something like that i think so you know hopefully the people that get paid to make those decisions figure that out my job is to play football but hopefully the politicians can figure that one out I'll tell you what, Joe Burrow speaks out after Uvalde, the, the tragedy in Texas, the school shooting. Now he comes out, Roe versus Wade is overturned. Um, obviously a, a national point of concern, a, a massive seismic shift, I think, in our country. And we have not seen a lot of male athletes come out expressing opinions about this. Joe Burrow, however, we see in his Instagram feed, comes out and says, basically takes a stance here. And, and says, you know, this is something he cares about and he's going to speak out about it. He's not going to be silent. I think it's really interesting. Joe Burrow in the heart of the Midwest. I grew up in Michigan, Ohio. People don't want to hear 
a lot of opinions about gun control. They don't want to hear a lot of opinions about um, pro-choice or uh, abortion or Roe versus Wade. And yet you've got Joe Burrow coming out here and saying, look, I'm going to express myself. I have a platform here and it's important to me. And frankly, I think some people are looking at this situation, looking at him and saying, we probably do with a little more of that, particularly in an NFL that's been pretty silent on the fall of Roe versus Wade. Yeah, but Charles, it goes back even even to him coming into the league where he was speaking out on social justice and racial equality. I have so much respect for Joe Burrow for speaking on these issues. You know, I remember once during the, the 2011, or let me let me backtrack. We know owners don't like what they call distractions, and they like their quarterbacks to sort of set the tone for the, the culture of the locker room in terms of not creating distractions. And I remember back in the 2011 labor negotiations, and I was out uh, uh, with uh, a former MVP, league MVP, a quarterback, and I said to him, why aren't more quarterbacks speaking out on this issue? Because it relates directly to you as a player, these labor negotiations. And I will never forget this. The player said to me, you have to understand that we quarterbacks, we have relationships with owners beyond our playing days. And therefore, in essence, they don't want to say anything that's going to compromise that relationship once they're done playing. Well, when I see someone like Joe Burrow speaking out in this way, I see a young man who is speaking out on principle and isn't worried about profit or his pocketbook. He is worried about people and principle. And from that standpoint, I just have so much respect for him because, as you said, leading into this, it's rare to see you know, our athletes speaking out in this way at that position in particular. But to see a young white quarterback speaking out on issues of racial equality and social justice and now all of these things, I can't applaud Joe Burrow um, long enough. I, I think it's tremendous. And I think hopefully we will see more from other players. Uh, this Roe v. Wade decision is not simply a woman's issue. It is a all of us issue. And um, I applaud Joe Burrow. I'm curious if this is part of seeing we, you and I have both known covering the league as long as we have the, the tremendous platform that quarterbacks in particular have um, not not only in where it concerns, hey, how, how the, the offense is shaped in the NFL, how rules get shaped, protecting quarterbacks, all these different things. But they've always had an ability when they open their mouths to cause ripples, to cause people to look. When labor negotiations happen, remember, the first thing we always hear is, hey, when the union is, is fighting against the NFL and, and there's a CBA coming up, get those quarterbacks lined up. We want those quarterbacks out front, you know, talking about this because people listen. And now all of a sudden we're seeing a generation of younger guys come into the league that realize, well, I can talk about a lot of things. I don't just have to talk about labor. I don't just have to talk about the game. I can talk about other things beyond this. And, and what's interesting about Burrow is he is heading toward, if, if last season is any indication, superstardom. This is a guy who could potentially be one of the faces of the league. If he's not already, he could definitely solidify that next season um, if he were to repeat what he did in 2021. And I, I, just the, the fact that he is going out on a limb and, and speaking, I guess, what, what is ultimately his truth, and then doing it in the heart of Ohio of all places. Again, having grown up in Michigan, I know what it's like to go out and, and say things like this and engage in this kind of a debate. That's not easy. And I'm sure there's a segment of the Cincinnati Bengals fan base that's sitting there going, yeah, I don't know if I agree with that. And they're going to have to listen to it because I don't think Joe Burrow is going to be quiet about this. 
No, he's not, and he, and he shouldn't be, in my opinion. Um, these issues are too serious to simply um, remain silent on. So what this reminds me of also is a larger conversation. I go back to 2006 when Roger Goodell was voted in as commissioner. And the following week after being named commissioner, I remember he flew out to, to the Bay Area, out to, um, I can't remember if the game was in Oakland or in San Francisco, to a preseason game between the 49ers and the Raiders. And he met with Dr. Harry Edwards, a respected um, sociologist who was also part of the, the Black Fist movement at the 68 Olympics. And I remember Dr. Edwards telling me that the commissioner wanted to get a lay of the land of the NFL. And one of the things that Dr. Edwards said that he relayed to the commissioner was that the face of the league is changing. It is becoming more black, and these black players are going to become um, the face of your league, and they are not going to leave their communities at the locker room door. And exactly 10 years later, we saw Colin Kaepernick take a knee to address some of these issues. And I think what players have learned from that is that there is power in their voice, that they can participate in terms of making positive change in this country. And I think from that, you see guys like Joe Burrow who are willing to speak out on issues beyond just the social justice or the racial justice issue, but also these other issues that affect all of society. And again, for that, I applaud them. I, I got to tell you, when we're talking about the NFL, particularly as it concerns Roe versus Wade, and you know, you talk about Goodell's sort of history and, in some ways, checkered history with with the embrace of social justice, or you know, coming around pretty slow on certain aspects of it. They've been pretty silent. The league, by and large, has been pretty silent on, on Roe versus Wade, which, frankly, should be a little disappointing considering you and I, what have we heard from the, the league office, from Park Avenue, for years now? Well, look at women in the sport. We're promo- they're becoming coaches. Uh, they're becoming executives. Uh, there's you know a, a future female general manager uh, in the offing at some point for, for an NFL team. And then... This happens with Roe versus Wade, huge, huge issue where, I mean, half of the league's executive makeup, or if not half, a sizable percentage of the league's executive makeup or, or uh, you know, when you look at just who teams employ are affected by this. And yet the league has been pretty quiet about it. Why? Why be quiet about an issue that clearly matters to a, a, a particularly a gender, and, and really it should matter to both genders, but a gender that you have said, hey, we're making big strides in opening every avenue of our game to women. Charles, I think you know the answer to that. Number one, the NFL is rarely, if ever, proactive on an issue. It is always reactionary, or, or for the most part, um, reactionary. I don't want to paint with a broad brush and say always, but at least as far as I can remember, the NFL in every major case, is is reactionary instead of being proactive. And like we talked about with Sean Watson yesterday, it will float out ideas as if putting its finger in the air to see which way the wind of public sentiment is blowing and then make decisions based on that. The other thing I would say to you is this is not a clear-cut issue as, as some of us would like it to believe. There are women out there, as you know, who believe and support the overturning of Roe v. Wade. So the NFL, as a business, has to ask itself, if we come out strongly in favor of Roe v. Wade, how many women then are we alienating who support the overturning of Roe v. Wade? Um, You know, I know where you fall on it. I know where I fall on it. 
But as a practical matter, again, the NFL is a business and they look at the bottom line on everything and that's why they are typically reactionary instead of proactive. And I have to believe the discussions are going on internally about if we do say something publicly, um, who are we going to alienate in this, particularly at a time where, as you said, the outreach to women has been so strong in recent years. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, wild times. It's wild times. I hope we see more, though, of individuals recognizing the platform and not being afraid to speak. I mean, at the very least, people can look at Joe Burrow and say, I don't have to be silent about how I feel, and I have a position where at least people will listen. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Don't, don't get it messed up. Russ is one of the best players our league has ever seen. And there's still a ton left in that tank. I don't know why people tend to try to write him off. I'm going to approach him like I do every player I've ever encountered. We're going to talk about our running habits with the ball, without the ball. And again, the, to the, the team, the, the rhythm of the team, and, and trying to establish a rhythm with LeBron, Russ, AD. Mr. Mr. Opportunity, a little Joe to see in the background, maybe some boys to men <laughs> on bended knee. Go go back to when the love was still strong. Uh, Darvin Ham is he's in a tough spot. Okay, you got to you have to coach LeBron, and then you got to figure out a way to make Russ what he isn't inside a, a team structure with the Lakers that I, I got to believe rises and falls with really what happens with Russell Westbrook. You tell me, Kurt, am I wrong looking at it like that? A little bit. I actually think it rises and falls a little more with Anthony Davis. Like, LeBron's going to be okay. LeBron, right? Like, LeBron's going to show up in shape, get points, be a top 10 player in the league. Get, you know, again, I, I, I sometimes think he's just a liquid metal terminator. I don't, I'm not sure he's human. Like, he just shows up every <laughs> year and just keeps getting it done. But Anthony Davis, and look, Russ is what he is this year at this point in his career. Darvin Ham's the right guy to coach this team. He is a strong personality. He is coming in with a vision of how he wants things to run. But you're only getting – Russ is what he is at this point. He's not a shooter. He's still got some athleticism. If you can get him to play in a system and buy into that system, it'll work. Okay. But it, it's limited. It's limited. It really rises and falls. They need bubble Anthony Davis. If they're going to win, if the Lakers are going to be a threat this year, Davis has got to be knocking down shots from the outside, being a force in the paint at the rim and, and being focused and driven every night, which he was in that setting, but certainly hasn't been healthy enough and, and hasn't played like that the last two years. Kurt, can you explain to me what system Russ fits in? Because when I look at him with the <laughs> Lakers, he doesn't fit. I mean, he's a ball no. dominant guard. You've got LeBron, who is a ball dominant player. AD, as you said, doesn't like to play in the post as much as he did maybe earlier in his career. Um, Russ doesn't have a mid-range game. He doesn't have a long-range game. He's a slasher. 
So how does he fit into this system that Darvin Ham is going to run? This is the million dollar question. They, they, they've got to get him working off the ball more, coming out of the dunker spot. But honestly, the best use, and, and Frank Vogel did a little of this, but he didn't push it far enough. I think Ham can. Russell Westbrook is a brilliant sixth man. If you bring him off the bench and give him the ball and let him run a second unit and push the pace and, and still play 25, 30 minutes a night, like still like 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 the Tyler Hero who won this year, guys who come up for the Beatle Ginobili back in the day. You can bring a guy off the bench and have him be a huge impact in the team. If you can get him to buy into that role where he is in charge of the second unit and he'll be out there to close most games in working a little more off ball, if you can get him to buy into that, It'll work. The problem is he didn't buy into it last year. He demanded to bring the ball up. He demanded to start for a while. Like, it was kind of a mess under Frank Vogel. We'll see if Darvin, like I said, Darvin is a great coach and a strong personality, and I think he's the best guy they could have hired for this job. Is it enough? Yeah, we'll find out. <laughs> it, that, that's my question for you. Knowing the league and knowing yeah. the players as well as you do, can you see Westbrook buying into that role? Because you're, I agree with you. I think he'd be perfect in that role. But can you see him buying into it? Through training camp in the first two weeks of the season? Sure. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> By Christmas? <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not sure. Let's put it this way, guys. I'm not sure that's where I'd bet my money. <laughs> okay, well, if, if, if you're not confident they can keep this together through Christmas, health permitting. <laughs> John Wall yeah. obviously looks like he's, he's he's headed to the Clippers. Are they even the best team in L.A.? I'm talking health permitting oh. with the Clippers. If everybody's healthy in there and on the floor, Lakers aren't even the best team in L.A., right? No, not in. They frankly haven't been for a I mean, they, obviously they won the title a few years ago, but for the bulk of the last 12 years since Chris Paul came to town with the Clippers, no, they, they have not been. Um, and they won't be next year. Those Clippers, if, again, health aside – that's a contender. Like, I think sometimes we forget how good Kawhi Leonard is and how he he is one of those guys who does have another gear in the playoffs, right? Like, a guy who can really, hey, it's postseason time. I'm ratcheting this thing up. Paul George is brilliant, but they have surrounded them with depth, shooting, athleticism, versatility. Uh, and John Wall fits with that. Now you're going to run John Wall and Reggie Jackson, two solid point guards who can work on and off a little, keep the, most importantly for them, keep the pace up, get them some easy buckets, whichever order you run them in, whichever one you start and bring off the bench. I really think it works for them. You get to rest Kawhi and then let him play some defense and then have Kawhi and Paul George as primary shot creators, particularly in the fourth quarter. I Look, I'm. it's way too early to make these predictions, but I – I can see myself picking the Clippers to come out of the West. Like I like they I think they're going to be that good. Whoa, it's just a it's just a bet whoa, on the Oh, time, time out. Time out. Charles, tell them where Warriors I'm from. Warriors fan. A, tell them where I'm from. This is a Warriors fan chiming. <laughs> I am a San Francisco native, grew up going to Warriors games. I can't let you get away with saying that. <laughs> The Warriors will be good next year. Like the Warriors will be good next year. What the what the Warriors have, what the Warriors' advantage is, is look. Obviously, Steph's not getting younger. Clay's still bouncing back. Um, Draymond, you could actually see during the finals at points. Father Time's starting to catch up in that race. You need an infusion of youth and athleticism. 
except they've already got it on the roster. Like, that's the best part for the Warriors is you're going to get Kuminga a lot more run. And Steve Kerr, to his credit, when they had early round playoff series in the bag, got Moody run, got Kuminga run, got like these guys, hey, you're not going to see time when it gets, <laughs> when we get to the finals, guys, enjoy the bench. But like in pre earlier playoff games, this is what it's like to be out there, got them some playing time. They're going to have to use them more next season to keep their guys fresh. I, look, they're definitely in the mix. I just, I think Kawhi is one of the handful of guys, and we've seen it a couple of times, we certainly saw it in Toronto, who can elevate himself and his team in big moments to another level. So I, I again, way too early to make those picks. That's, you know, I'm, I'm still trying to get past the draft in my head. So like, get, get past Kyrie. Like, <laughs> but I, I think the Lakers, the Clippers are absolutely in the mix. Well, look, we heard Kyrie Irving's name come up with the Clippers, obviously the Lakers, the Knicks. Um, uh, Kyrie surprised us all. It surprised me anyway. And he's going to stay, obviously, with the Nets. Makes what I think was clearly the right business decision for himself. Is this this is like Al Pacino and Godfather? Just when I thought I was out, I'm getting pulled back in by the Nets. <laughs> like, are we? Is there any chance? Like, are we going to do this again with the Nets, where we're, well, hey, look at the talent. If every player's healthy, if they're playing at their top level, and oh, by the way, Kyrie should be balling out this year because there's potentially another max deal out there for him someday. Yeah. Is this the Nets actually coming back together now? In theory, yeah. Like, there's not a lot of margin for error, but the, <laughs> the Nets organization got what they wanted, right? They got Kyrie on the shortest term of contracts. They got him on a short-term contract. Yeah. And now he's got a motivation, a pressure to perform. Like, he is now – his reputation isn't great around the league after the last three years. That's part of the reason there wasn't a great deal for him. My, the Clippers weren't falling over themselves to bring him to the Clippers, right? They like they looked at him, they looked at their setup and said, you know what, we're good. And it, it, that was sort of the same in Dallas. We're like, you know what, we'd rather spend some money on Brunson than shift this whole thing around to go after Kyrie. I think he realized, well, he does now realize that, where the market is. So if you get a motivated Kyrie, you get a healthy Kevin Durant, and hey, they've still got Joe Harris. They've still got, like, Seth Curry's there. And on down the line. This is a, a Ben Simmons, um, if he accepts the role, like, in, again, the potential for a contender is absolutely there. Uh, I'm going to need to see it on the court. And by the way, the problem in Brooklyn is because you didn't lock up Kyrie for like three years or a two plus one, now this is a cloud, right? <laughs> the cloud is following yeah. you all season long, man, going, the second things get a little bit sideways, and I know the New York media will be its usual relaxed patient self waiting yeah, for them yeah. to come together. When things start to go sideways, can you imagine, like, I'm curious what the odds will end up being that Kyrie's traded, because I can absolutely see a scenario where things don't start yeah. well, things get a little weird, and they realize he's not coming back, and by the deadline, they are, you know, I don't know that they're trading Durant that fast, but everybody's, they're trading everybody in the sh and everybody's getting off the ship. Yeah, my, my question, though, is would there be a team willing to take him at that point if it got sideways and he's on that one-year deal? But let me ask you this, Kirk, before we get out of here. Ben Simmons, I don't think we talk about him enough in this equation. What can he bring to this team, and what do you think he will bring to this team after what just transpired a year ago? He should be fresh, right? Um, question. <laughs> um, this is a case where 
I'm really curious to see what they do with him because he wants to be a point guard. He wanted the ball in his hands. They've talked a little about putting the ball in his hands. But on a team with Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant, his best role is a version of Draymond Green, a secondary playmaker. I'm going to set the pick, roll. He gets that ball at the free throw line. He is such a good – he can get to the rim and finish. He can distribute. He is such a good passer. He can push the ball in transition and kind of get it to other guys. And then he brings something they really did lack last year, which is defense, right? He is an elite on-ball defender. If he accepts that role, stays healthy, and buys into it and plays that team game, which is like I feel like I'm saying that with everything about the Nets, if, if, if. If he does that, they become much more dangerous. Suddenly you've got two shot, elite shot creators. Uh, Kevin Durant is as good a scorer as the game has ever seen, and he's still – He's still seven feet tall and shoots over his head and can shoot from anywhere and gets a shot off whenever he wants. If Ben Simmons is getting 15, 17 points a night, pushing the ball in transition, plus racking up seven or eight assists, dishing it, and playing strong defense, this becomes, again, with Joe Harris, with Seth Curry, with everything that they've got around them, um, especially if they can find a stretch five out there. Brooklyn has the potential to be very good, but... Um, after watching the Lakers last, this last season, watching the Nets this past season, I, you, 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 we're all going to be waiting, right? We're, gonna, we're waiting for the ship to hit the uh, iceberg. Conceptually, though, okay, I know we're saying if, if, if with, with Brooklyn. There's, uh, it's crazy how many things yeah. could go wrong here. But say it all goes right. Okay. As the organization, do you sit there and go, well, we hit it perfect. Everything went right. Do we keep this all together? Is this something that we're we're saying we've we've got something, we've got a window, we move forward? Or do you say it it all went right? What are what are the odds it's going to continue to go right? What are the odds that we extend Kyrie and he doesn't revert back to what we've experienced before? Or the same with Simmons, you know, we get into a place where hey, we feel it's good, he's on the floor, he wants to be out there, he's motivated. Um, but then if we move beyond what became maybe the perfect situation for one season, I just, I, I look at Brooklyn, I'm like, do you continue to push your luck if things do go well? Do you say we keep riding this or do you go, hey, we, we caught lightning in a bottle, but let's not push it beyond 2022, 2023. Right, man. Yeah, this is true in the NBA, but it's, you guys know it's true in the NFL. It's true everywhere in every professional sport and frankly, college sports. Winning papers over a lot of stuff, doesn't it? Like covers up a lot of mistakes. Yeah, yeah. If, they're, if they're winning and everybody's buddy-buddy, you know, it's good. But uh, so, yeah, I think there is a theory. But I think if they get it together, then maybe they find an extension for Kyrie that matches up. Like another, if they do two plus one off of this, so three more years, that matches up with Kevin Durant's extension that he just signed. And you can run this for a few years and see if, if everybody's happy, you can try to do it. I'm, there's a risk with that, but you went and got you went and got Kyrie and KD to go for it. Like at this point, you're all in. You're not building. You're if you're not going all in, you're gonna see how the seer starts and then and hopefully if it goes well, I think you run it back. But we'll I, I think that they've they've bought they've bought themselves some time, but by not locking up Kyrie for longer I feel a lot of ways they just kicked the can down the road didn't they like all the decisions we're talking about with Kyrie and then after that the, the next domino is obviously well if Kyrie's gone does Durant stay 
that's now deadline. That's now next summer. But I don't think that's gone. That conversation still has. But guys, I mean, that never happens in the NFL, right? Like they never just kick the can down the road and try to deal with their problems <laughs> later. They they get on it. <laughs> yeah, right. No, I, 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 look, I, I think for the Nets, this couldn't have worked out better. As I say, Kyrie may be a little crazy, but he's not stupid. And yeah. for him to get his money, this is the deal he had to make. And I do believe, as Charles said, you will see a motivated Kyrie this year. And I believe he will play well. KD, we know, will play well, health permitting. And I think Ben Simmons has some things to prove as well because his integrity has been questioned after last season. Yeah. And so I do believe it can come together for the Nets. But to Charles's point, I wouldn't want to go with it beyond this year because I just I, I know the past. And as Herm Edwards, former football coach here in the NFL, always said to me, the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. And once Kyrie yeah. gets paid, we've seen how he responds. I wouldn't want to go down that road on a multi-year deal with him. And that's just me. I. Uh... You are not alone. There are plenty of, look, there wasn't a market for Kyrie. And by the way, I think I want to give Kyrie, you talked about him not being stupid. He actually played this smart. He wanted a longer term deal. Not only did he, well, not hold out, but try to, you know, use leverage and pressure. He used the idea that he's a little out there, that he's a little wild, that he's unpredictable, that he might be the one guy who would play for 6.4 million with the Lakers to try to leverage himself. He used his his presence, he was never going to do it, but he used right. the potential of that as leverage. And then the Nets called his bluff and he went, all right, I'll take I'll take your, I'll take your 36 million and go home. You're like, I'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. He may be crazy, but he's not stupid. Yeah. Thanks, Kurt. Anytime, guys. Take care. We appreciate you. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. Committed to the University of Texas. Hashtag Hook'em, the one and only tweet for Arch Manning. I, I don't know that there is a more beautiful situation on Twitter than to just tweet one time and be done with it. <laughs> be no, done with the media. That, I think. But be verified. Be verified. <laughs> one tweet. And How be verified. That? How. Pat Forty, how do you get verified with one tweet? How is that even possible? I, I'm going to suggest his last name has something to do with that. I, I don't know. Probably, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's pretty good. One sentence, one hashtag, and he's out. I mean, that's that's pretty yeah. good. Come in, come out right there for uh, for Arch. That Manning name, that's got some juice. Obviously, commits to the University of Texas. Um, I, I don't know. I, I really, I thought, I thought he was going to Alabama. For the longest time, um, I'll tell you what, Pat wrote a great column on this. I, this, He is, I don't know what to think of. You're going to have to help me sort this out because I don't know if, I've seen the clips. I've been watching them for a couple years now. Obviously, we've seen the prep clips. They've been out there for a while. Is he as generational as we are assuming or is this 
He carries the Manning name. The expectation is there that he's just going to follow in the footsteps, which have been unbelievable from obviously dad to Peyton to um, Eli, you know, even Cooper in there. I mean, like, what can he live up to this? That's what I, I need to know. Is this just hype and, and the kid can never live up to it? Well, it is a massive amount of hype. Uh, you know, you almost uh, worry about any young person who is entering into a college situation with this much hype around them. But does anybody have a better backgrounding for this uh, than Arch Manning would? And I've talked to people. I have full full disclosure. I have not seen him play a full game in person. I've seen a lot of clips and that sort of thing. And and everybody can look good in clips. He looks really good. But I've talked to people who, who insist that if his name were Arch Robinson or Arch Trotter, he would still be a generational <laughs> talent, that, that he has that kind of ability. He has that kind of polish, that kind of knowledge of the game, uh, the physical tools, the mental tools, the whole thing to, uh, to be one of the great quarterbacks. But again, you know, you've got to go out and see it and do it on a different level than Isidore Newman High School. So a lot still to be proven for him. And you do, again, worry about, you know, having this much placed on somebody. But he's probably going to be as prepared as any player we've ever seen walk onto a college football field to play quarterback. Pat, what was it about Texas that made this the right fit for him? Uh, a couple things, I think, Jim. For one thing, it's his own place and his own choice and his own direction. And I think that was important, that he didn't feel like he was following uh, his – father, grandfather, brothers who played in the Southeastern Conference. Eventually, Tennessee, or Texas will get there. We'll be an SEC school probably when Arch is a junior, and he may play one year of SEC ball. But it's outside of the footprint for now. It's away from the family ties, and it's away from having to play against the schools that you turn down, Ole Miss, uh, against Tennessee, against LSU, that sort of thing uh, for the time being. I think it was very close with Georgia and Texas. Alabama certainly was in the mix as well. Um, and, and those three were probably the final three. But Texas, A, it was his own direction. B, Steve Sarkeesian does have a very good track record working with quarterbacks. I mean, he's just coming off of doing great work with Tua Tonga-Vailoa and with Mac Jones. Uh, he will run a fun, innovative offense. I think it would be very nice to be a football hero at the University of Texas. Uh, I, he's going to make a ton of money in NIL, but I would put that pretty far down the list in terms of what was important to him because, let's face it, the Mannings have plenty of money. Uh, but I think just the opportunity to go blaze your own trail and help make Texas a, a contender again was pretty attractive to Arch Manning. What do you think it says about him that he wanted to go blaze his own trail? It would have been, as, you, as, as, as most would think, easy to follow in the footsteps of his granddad or his father. Um, but for him to go out and step outside of that, that independence, how is that viewed? What does that say about him? Yeah, I mean, I think that he's, he's a fairly mature uh, young man who, who wants to do his, his own thing and, and is not just going to blindly follow and say, you know, whatever the family says, I'll go do. Uh, I also wonder if maybe just it would have been a hard decision to pick which SEC school do you go to. Uh, and if it did come down to a Georgia-Alabama situation, Texas is a completely fresh alternative. 
in a different direction where you're not necessarily pitting one of those schools against another. You're not pitting any sort of family loyalties against anyone else there. Uh, but, you know, this is a guy I, in Cooper Manning, who is the oldest of the three Mannings, is his own guy, too. Uh, I mean, a very smart, funny fellow, uh, played a college receiver until he had a, a neck injury, a narrowing of the spine that forced him to retire. Uh, but you talk to Cooper, a lot of people say Cooper's the real live wire of that family, and there's already a lot of personality in it. So this is Cooper's kid, and I think that he's not feeling like he has to be beholden to what anybody else may expect from him. Well, I can tell you that Arch Trotter or Arch Robinson wouldn't have gotten the instant blue check for Twitter. I can tell you that that definitely wouldn't. No, that you're definitely correct. wouldn't happen. Look, I am I wrong to say? I you know I look at Alabama and you know Arch doesn't end up going there. I I, I guess I lent some significance to it just because he was such a gravitational recruit. He's somebody that we've been talking about. I mean, he's been in my Twitter feed for years. I mean, basically, since he took his first high school snap years ago, I've been watching clips of this kid awaiting this sort of arrival and for Alabama to be in the mix, to want him. And people can say whatever they want about the the recruitment process, but there was no question that Alabama definitely wanted this kid. Um, For Saban to have made the remarks about NIL, to trip over himself uh, with Texas A&M and cause that whole issue, and then to not land Arch Manning, am I reading too much into... Alabama being sort of a bellwether of the college football landscape, maybe changing a little bit more because of NIL and because, you know, I'm seeing this massive gravitational center of the universe recruit and they don't get him. And he goes to Texas, which let's be honest. I mean, Texas, there's been a lot of big talents that have gone to die at Texas, right? I mean, they've gone and not blossomed the way that we thought. Am I wrong to look at Alabama and go, are we seeing sort of the changes if I just focus on Alabama as a bellwether, are we seeing some changes in college football where that stranglehold that Alabama seems to have decade over decade with Nick Saban is not quite there anymore? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think you're wrong to at least wonder if we're on the cusp of a somewhat of a changing of the guard. Now, saying that Alabama's going to go into this season the clear number one in the nation. But Nick Saban's right. 70 years old. It's eventually things will Take a turn. You cannot stay on top forever. He, as a matter of fact, he's stayed on top longer than anyone ever has, quite frankly, in terms of the just sustained excellence from 2008 and through 2021. That doesn't happen in college football with one coach at one place. So, uh, I mean, it's been an extraordinary run. Now, I will say, hey, there's been people, including myself, who have shoveled some dirt on that grave a little bit prematurely. In 2014, when they lost back-to-back seasons to – uh, it was actually 2015, I think it was sexy, they lost to Ole Miss. And I was like, oh, the 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 hurry-up spread offense has passed Nick by. They're not going to be able to keep up. Well, they, they caught up. You know what? And so when there's innovations in the game, Saban usually finds a way to catch up. And they probably will again. But the NIL era is a completely different animal. And we have seen uh, a lot of surprising moves up the ladder in terms of recruiting from schools that maybe were just a little more ahead of the curve, uh, a little more desperate to do what they needed to do. Alabama's sitting there saying, hey, business as usual has been good. We don't have to change. Well, they're coming to a point where they might have to change or you're going to continue to lose players like this. I don't think Alabama, as long as Nick Saban's coaching, is never going to be in a position where they're at a massive talent deficit or anything like that. 
but you could reach a point where you stop getting almost everyone you want and you have the massive massive talent advantage sometimes things just eventually cyclically catch up with you you know pat we heard nick speak about that earlier uh this offseason and mentioned jimbo fisher and AM and and even mentioned jackson state and deon sanders um things that he publicly regretted later i'm curious is that sort of infighting among college coaches good for the game bad for the game that's a great question, Jim. I, I mean, it's it's good for the media. I don't know if it's good for the game. Um, I To me, it, it was extraordinary what went on between Nick Saban and those two other coaches. I mean, for him to say what he said was a whoa moment, and I'm not sure Saban was ready for the blowback that he got. I mean, Jimbo Fisher came out the next day, scorched earth on him, not just – firing back but getting personal and then Deion Sanders came and fired back at him and all of a sudden Nick Saban is backpedaling apologizing trying to get the whole thing to go away and that's really not been he's he never deals from a place of weakness and all of a sudden he was uh you know it's it's interesting it's intriguing I don't think it was you know the Southeastern Conference I was at SEC media day shortly thereafter spring meeting spring meetings and you know, they were mortified of the topic. They they didn't want to have that sort of uh, laundry aired, and they did their best to kind of brush it under the rug and, and make it go away. Uh, I think what it does really is it just – it does bring up the kind of the subterranean way that things had been happening for a long time to the surface. And now all of a sudden we're talking about how players get procured in college. And there is a quote-unquote permissible way to do it, and then as opposed to the old impermissible way where it happened under the table. Uh, so I'm okay with talking about it from that standpoint. Let's, let's be real and let's be honest about how recruiting really works in football. But there's a lot of people in charge who get uncomfortable. You know, Pat, we've, we've seen Deion Sanders pull some recruits that normally an HBCU might not pull. How much are coaches concerned about this at the PWIs? that if you have people like Deion Sanders and there are more I know of privately, Hall of Fame, black players, NFL players who have been approached about coaching at HBCUs and have that sort of aura about them, how much are PWIs and coaches concerned about top talent actually now looking and considering HBCUs as viable candidates for, for their services? Oh, I mean, it's it's an absolutely legitimate topic and, and a, a, the potential for significant change. I mean, what Justin Hunter did last year was absolutely unprecedented. It was eye-opening, and he's joining a program where Dion did very quick, good work at Jackson State, uh, getting up to 10 wins there. And, yeah, he has that magnetism. He has that allure. You put a name behind it and a personality and acumen. And, you know, NFL experience and somebody says, hey, you know, you want to be a defensive back or a skill position player? I'm a pretty good coach in that area. Uh, there could be plenty of other uh, former great players who could step in and probably do the same. So uh, it's a it's a fascinating moment because as we've talked about, I mean, NIL can be a leveler of the playing field. You may not be able to, you know, Jackson State or Florida A&M or Bethune-Cookman or whoever may not be able to go get 10 five-star guys, but you can get one or two, and all of a sudden you are changing the dynamic of who you are and how you recruit and what the interest level may be in terms of, of fans and media. 
uh, and things could really get interesting. So I I'm fascinated to see where this is going to go. I think there's going to be a real market for Deion Sanders as a uh, head coach at the, uh, the FBS and or Power 5 level uh, in this next offseason coaching cycle. <laughs> Jim rocking the alma mater. I love it. There you that's, go. It's always good. Making it looks sure good. People see it. Pat, I love having you. I, I'm going to say this. The mics have to have you back, okay, after we are gone so that you can explain how Rock Nation COO Brett Yormark is going to end up running the Big 12 as commissioner. That's for <laughs> another day. I'm sorry we didn't get to it, but you've got to have Pat Forty back to talk about this because that's great. The answer all day Monday was who? Oh, be happy to fill people <laughs> in on who. Thanks, Pat. Thank I you. appreciate you, Pat. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. All right. Well, my attire notwithstanding, we pulled it off two days without Mike and Mike. I appreciate it, Trot, coming in. Next time, I will absolutely come with the T-shirt and the ball cap, and you can switch it up. You can put on the suit, throw the suit on. And you could rap. That sounds good to me, man. Hey, look, I had to wear this today knowing we were going to have Pat on and we were going to talk about college football, HBCUs, and hoping that anyone who sees this, you got a talented elite player, please send them here. We haven't had a good season, a strong season in a while, so we need some of that talent. All right. Well, we'll be back. Thanks again, Trot. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939.